Welcome to the Evolved Athlete Podcast, where the best in the business bring you the best in fitness, nutrition, wellness, and overall, making you the best athlete of all time. We're host Coach P and his fellow coaches, Kayla, Destiny, Jen, and Ian, take you on a path to greatness. Let's get on with our guest and let's have a great time. Let's roll. All right, y'all. Welcome back to the Evolved Athlete Podcast. I am your host, Coach P, and today we're going to dive into some really cool information that's going to teach us more about our physiology, how we handle stress, and how we can approach our day-to-day lives, especially when we go through specific types of seasons where we might be taking on more than what we usually do, and how we can figure out how our body is reacting to that stress. And so the two things that we're going to talk about today are CO2 tolerance and heart rate variability, and what those things have to do with stress, and how we can really use them as gauge markers for what's going on in our life currently, how we're reacting to strain, how we're reacting to training, and ultimately, are we going to get the most out of our current day-to-day lifestyle that we have? It can really bring a sense to how we need to change our lifestyle and how we really need to bring focus onto more important matters, particularly as it has to do with stress. The more and more I am mentored by individuals in the health and fitness industry and through the university, the more I learn that stress really is one of the biggest killers of us all. It really does negatively impact every single health aspect, every single system, and every single marker that we can look at as far as how we can track our health and how we're going to approach and react and adapt to health and fitness. And it really does increase all of our risks of all different types of diseases. And we really need to take stress seriously, particularly as we start to become more and more engaged in these sedentary lifestyles that many of us have due to our occupations, mostly being behind a screen and in a chair every single day. And when you combine this with the American diet and the lack of physical activity, it becomes even worse in setting up the perfect storm for increasing the rates of which we're getting this stress. Combine that with the increase in the technological age and the reduction of total sleep time, it becomes even more impactful when we're not getting high quality sleep throughout the night because of our over-reliance on technology and the utilization of such devices that delay melatonin release and negatively impact our sleep throughout the night. So we're going to do a deep dive into each of these areas, fully explain them and show you how it is that you can become more aware, how to test your own CO2 tolerance, how to figure out what your heart rate variability might be and what you can do about it. So let's jump into our first topic today and let's talk all about carbon dioxide tolerance. And so what CO2 tolerance is, is the body's ability to handle a temporary imbalance of CO2 and oxygen. The higher your tolerance is, the longer you'll be able to hold your breath. Very similar to like what we see with breath work, training to increase our CO2 tolerance has gained a lot of popularity for its ability to improve your physical and mental health. So let's put this in the layman's terms for you all. In, in, in essence, our CO2 tolerance is our body's capacity to really play nice with the increased levels of carbon dioxide. Right? Our bodies are very, very efficient machines. They churn out carbon dioxide as a byproduct of all the energy that we burn. Every metabolic processes in the body gives off CO2 as a byproduct. But where it gets interesting 
is that the more carbon dioxide that you can handle, the better you can control your urge to breathe. Try try holding your breath for a second underwater or just during challenging exercise, and you'll feel your carbon, carbon dioxide tolerance at work. But the biggest thing we need to think about is, well, why do we care about this? How, how does knowing how resilient we are to the buildup of CO2 have anything to do with my health? But it, it's a lot more than that. And CO2 tolerance isn't just about showing off in the pool. It's very much tied to our physical performance and even our mental health. And if you've ever felt a wave of panic in a stressful situation, you can feel this. You start to hyperventilate because when you are stressed out, when you are pushed more into a fight or flight state, you are actually giving off a lot of carbon dioxide as well and having that build up in the system. And so, and as a result, that can be a clear indicator of low CO2 tolerance. And so for a lot of individuals who struggle with anxiety, overthinking, or any mental health-related issue, this can be a really, really important tool to not only help you become more resilient to that stress, but also allow you to develop better coping mechanisms that can help you under times of extreme duress. And so it can really help you improve your tolerance and help you stay calm under pressure. And so when it comes to understanding CO2 tolerance better, we're finding now that more and more exercise physiologists and coaches are recommending breathwork practices, not only for the purpose of increasing oxygenation and increasing focus for your mental health, but also to improve your resilience to overall CO2 and can help you build your resilience throughout those times of stress. This can be practiced just through common breathwork practices. It can be practiced during things like exposing yourself to certain stressful situations, such as doing cold plunges, cold showers, or even when you're under heat duress, it can be very, very impactful by doing basic level CO2 tolerance tests. Other ways that you can now, the biggest question is, well, how can we improve this? And what is it? what are the real benefits of this here? So before we go into how we can actually test and actually improve this, let's go over the benefits of CO2 tolerance. Besides making you more resilient towards that stress and being able to get rid of CO2, it can also help you reduce anxiety. One of the biggest issues triggered by shallow breathing is anxiety. And since CO2 is able to maintain, uh, your tolerance is able to maintain a consistent breathing pattern, having a higher tolerance can actually help you reduce that anxiety. There's been numerous research studies conducted by the HHP Foundation finding that those with higher CO2 tolerance had lower in-the-moment anxiety and have better abilities to be able to shift the direction of their thoughts and be able to get through their stressful incidents throughout the day. suggesting that building up your CO2 tolerance for anxiety can help you maintain a sense of calm during everyday life. And this would be super significant when you use that as an opportunity to practice various types of cognitive behavioral therapies, whether it's breath work, whether it's journaling, or whether it's some type of grounding technique that may be recommended to you to get through stressful situations. And what we know, and you can listen on, you know, the, the Huberman Lab podcast talks about this a lot, when these are the prime times for you to take advantage of those incidents to where you can really encourage neuroplasticity. By doing it in the moment during those particular times, you be and you start to use that as an actionable item, you can start to rewrite the way that your body reacts to certain types of stress. This is commonly used in certain cognitive behavioral therapies with individuals with PTSD when they are asked to journal about their experiences. And then once they start to be exposed to that emotion, they start to write different ways of getting through that particular experience through therapy. And it can be really, really helpful in rewiring the way that they handle that stress. 
Other benefits of CO2, improving your CO2 tolerance can help you run faster for longer. It improves your overall tolerance to the buildup of that CO2. And so, and as a result, you not only utilize oxygen better, um, especially if you're combining this with regular exercise, um, but you can also allow yourself to be able to push yourself harder for longer. It can allow, it can be a benefit to endurance athletes because you can, you can tolerate more CO2 and allow yourself to slow your heart rate and running with that low understandably, if you look at this from the flip side, running with a lower tolerance can actually cause you to beat faster. It causes more stress onto the system. It, it overall increases, uh, it, it decreases your time to fatigue. So you're going to you tire out much, much quicker. This can also be applied to if you are performing anything under the water um, to where you can increase the time that you can hold your breath and therefore perform any type of sports related to aerobics in the aquatic area. But it can also help you, and this is the much bigger area that is of influence to me here. Um, and what I like to use usually teach when I'm coaching or teaching my students is how it can help manage symptoms of depression. Because if we can really apply this to how it can reduce anxiety, then having a high tolerance has been proven in various research studies to help manage those symptoms of depression. Due to the fact that CO2 buildup increases a fight or flight response and increases stress and anxiety, learning how to improve our stress and learning how to improve our resilience to that buildup of CO2 can actually allow us to be able to have better control over being able to calm the nervous system and being stronger in our abilities to send that signal to initiate more parasympathetic activity, which can allow us to maintain more of a relaxed state and experience more positive emotions, which can be very, very helpful in those who constantly experience depressive-like symptoms, especially for those who are going through really, really hard times of going through stressful duress, whether they're you know changing jobs, whether they're in between jobs, relationship-related issues, whatever issue, or you're simply being overwork CEO. I work with a lot of uh, uh, captains of industry and entrepreneurs. And the biggest things that I run into with a lot of these individuals is they're working so hard, they never really take the time to send the signal to their body to come down. You know, I deal with a lot of type A, triple A, I'm calling them now, individuals when it comes to this. And so it becomes super, super important that we combine this theory, not theory, we combine this practice of improving CO2 tolerance with things like breath work to not only be able to improve our resilience, but also combine it with the ability to calm our nervous system down. Now, let's apply this to other aspects of health because we know that stress will negatively impact every single aspect of the human body in a negative way. And so what we need to, what we can also see though, however, is that that increase in CO2 but constantly being in that stressed out state can also have an impact on inflammation. And so we know that improving your tolerance to CO2, increasing that stress resilience can actually reduce inflammation. Building a higher tolerance allows you to hold on to that carbon dioxide for longer, meaning that there will be more availability of oxygen to be able to travel throughout the body and help relieve inflammation and thus increase energy as well. So how do we really try to test this now? How can you figure out what we can do? And so the good news is, is there's a lot of different ways that we can improve our overall CO2 tolerance from actual specific breathing techniques to proper diet, or even using methods such as the Patekio method or the Iceman Wim Hof method. 
for improving our CO2 tolerance. So here's what we can do. In order to test your CO2 tolerance, make sure that you have some sort of timer nearby, ready to use, ready to rock and roll. What you're going to do is you're going to inhale and exhale normally three times through your nose very gently. Then you're going to inhale for a fourth time, fully filling up your lungs to ultimate capacity. And remember, full breathing capacity is all the way down through your pelvis, expanding your abdomen and rib cage and your chest, 360 degree breathing. Once you're ready to exhale, that's when you start your timer. And the goal here is to exhale as slowly as you possibly can through your nose as long as you can. You may have done yoga before or directed breathing practices. Um, a lot of the times, Ramwad or Gowad or now what's called the, the pliability app, um, which is from Ramwad. In their exercises, they will also have breathing protocols to help you become more resilient to, to that CO2. And what they'll usually try to do is teach you how to exhale as slowly as possible, letting the air out very, very gently through the nasal cavity. This is what you're doing here. So after this fourth big inhale, you are going to exhale as slowly as you possibly can out your nose for as long as you can. Once you have run out of air and you have fully exhaled all the way out, that is when you stop the timer. There are a couple caveats. If you accidentally hold your breath, or swallow while exhaling, you will need to stop and do it all over again because you've stopped exhaling improperly. Now, once you have recorded your time and you compare it, and once you have recorded your time, now it's time to figure out, okay, then where am I currently? If you find that you're above 80 seconds, like you can really hold it in and let it out slow without having any type of uh, reaction or stress-related event, you are in a top category of an advanced pulmonary adaptation with excellent breathing control and stress control. But we're not all elite athletes. And so the average individual should be shooting between 20 to 40 seconds or so. This is average. This means that you experience moderate to high stress or anxiety state and your breathing pattern needs to improve. All right. Once you start to get above 40 to 60 seconds, you become more in that intermediate range where you have a likelihood of improving quickly with additional tolerance training and advanced. You start to get into the 60 to 80 second range where you have a healthy ventilatory system with good breathing control and fairly good stress control. Anything less than 20, 20 seconds, then we have very high levels of anxiety and stress sensitivity with very poor pulmonary capacity with the possibility of mechanical restriction, which can sometimes happen in those with either sleep-related disorders or obstructive sleep apnea. And so the basics of how we can train this and become and improve our overall CO2 tolerance is one, breath work is a great way to do this because it allows us to be able to get better at sending the signal to the parasympathetic nervous system to become more active. This is going to relate to when we talk about heart rate variability here in just a moment, um, but it is going to involve you utilizing different techniques that gradually increase your ability to hold your breath for longer periods of time. And when it comes to, especially for beginners, it's best to focus on what is called static apnea training, which is the most simplest method that provides quick results for those who are dedicated to this training, which which is usually done through utilizing holding your breath techniques to where you'll do multiple cycles of utilizing uh, resting for either two and a half minutes or so. And then you try to hold your breath for anywhere from at least 30 seconds upwards to a minute and 30 and 30 seconds. As you start to get better and better and better, you can start to decrease your overall rest time. And that can be really, really useful.
useful in helping you increase your CO2 tolerance. So one of the best things that I like to do to help individuals get better at increasing their CO2 tolerance is simple box breathing. Box breathing is known as utilizing a square technique where you inhale for the same amount of time as you hold your breath for the same amount of time, you exhale for the same amount of time, and then you don't breathe for the same amount of time. And so the way that you can set this up is by doing either a four by four by four by four or a five by five by five by five. And so you would inhale for five seconds, you would hold your breath for five seconds, you would exhale for five seconds, and then you would not breathe for five seconds. This will help you to control hyperventilation. This will help release stress and anxiety, even lower things like blood pressure and can even promote calm and relaxation and improve your sleep. And you can repeat this cycle as many times as desired until you feel that anxiety has gone down. And this is best suited for everyone from athletes to those individuals that have high stress jobs. I've actually started recommending this more to a lot of the individuals who uh, are working constantly throughout the day and go from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting because oftentimes you will go constantly and not give your body that chance to be able to reestablish itself and balance out your nervous system. In addition, diaphragmatic breathing itself can be super important and should be done in, in conjunction with box breathing because when, when you do box breathing, uh, the, usually it can, now I do influence and I do try to teach everyone to utilize a full diaphragmatic breath no matter what type of breath protocol they're doing. But sometimes when you're doing just simple box breathing, they tend to be a little bit more shallow in the breath, whereas specific diaphragmatic breathing is actually designed to be deep breathing for longer periods of time where you really focus on very, very big, deep inhales and very, very slow exhales, really focusing on connecting with your diaphragm muscle that is designed to be pulled all the way down to the bottom of the pelvis. And so it's super, super important that we utilize a combination of these techniques to really get the best out of this to help improve our CO2 tolerance and improve our ability to be able to be resilient towards stress. Another aspect that we should apply to this is doing nasal breathing. You should never breathe through your, your mouth. All right? It will actually have not only uh, ramifications with how we utilize oxygen, but it can also have mechanical-related issue, uh, issues as well. And we can talk about that on another podcast. Um, but it's really, really important to utilize nasal breathing as it not only helps reduce the CO2, to, CO2 levels, helps us um, uh, achieve more oxygen in the body, um, but can also strengthen the diet diaphragm uh, and reduce the overall risk of coughing and lowers the risk of snoring and sleep apnea. So now, how does this all connect with heart rate variability? The two are actually very related to each other when it comes to stress. And HRV is something that has gained a lot of popularity in the scientific literature. We are paying more and more attention to it now as it is a clear indicator of how we're dealing with stress. And so let's go over what we see from the Cleveland Clinic and what they define as this. And this is the same thing you'll find on things like PubMed and the NIH will we'll define it in a very similar way and where heart rate variability is the amount of time between your heartbeats fluctu will fluctuate slightly. Even though these fluctuations are undetectable except with specialized devices, they can still indicate current or future health problems including heart conditions and mental health related issues such as anxiety and depression. So it is the amount of time between where your heartbeats will fluctuate and this can be very, very small uh, and they can add or subtract a fraction of second between beats. Um, and what we like to see with these oftentimes is, you know, the biggest question I usually get is, coach, is this an arrhythmia? No. Heart rate variability 
is a very normal occurrence, right? The normal beating of your heart is what's called a sinus rhythm. When your heart is beating normally, but the variability between heart rates is greater than about 0.12 seconds or so, this is called sinus arrhythmia. Heart rate variability can sometimes meet the criteria for being exactly that. However, sinus arrhythmia is usually due to breathing, which is called your respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is part of a normal reflex of your heart and circulatory system working together. But how does heart rate variability work? Well, your heart your heartbeat beats at specific rate at all times. That rate changes depending on what you're doing at the time. Slower heart rates happen when you're resting or relaxed, and faster heart rates happen when you're active, stressed, or when you're in danger. There is variability in your heart rate based on the needs of your body and your current respiratory patterns. Certain, Sometimes certain medications and medical devices, such as having a pacemaker, can affect this as well, um, but your heart rate variability also tends to decrease normally as we get older. Whether you're awake or asleep, whether you're calm or stressed, your heart has the ability to react to changes in your life and surroundings, but it doesn't know when to react on its own. So it relies on another body system for help, which is your nervous system. And this is where stress comes into play and how this is all related together. And so what I want you to picture right now is your heart is the drummer, okay? The heart is the drummer in the band of your body, all right? They're getting ready to play some ACDC and play some music. And as a good drummer knows, it's not just about keeping the beat, but it's also about mixing it up a bit, all right? Heart rate variability measures those subtle changes in that beat. And here's the best part, all right? A more variable heart rate signifies a healthier, more responsive body. It's like your body's DJ, all right? It's mixing up the fast beats of your fight or flight response with the slow jam of your rest and digest system. That means that your body has a strong ability to be able to get into the stress response, but also have an equally stressed ability to get out of it and to be able to go back down, okay? And when you when you hear a lot of talks from Dr. Andy Galpin, who's one of the who's a really really great exercise physiologist and coach in our industry today, one of the things that he'll say is that the biggest problem a lot of people have is that we are so stressed out all the time and we and a lot of people are lacking the required amounts of physical activity and and they have low CO2 tolerance and they're not good at dealing with their stress that their body does just fine getting into a stressed out response. That is obviously clear. But the problem is, is that their body is not as efficient at being able to send the signal to come down and get into a parasympathetic state. That's where we get into this issue. That's where we get into these higher levels of CO2 being built up throughout the day and not being able to get rid of it as efficiently as we would like. And as a result, can have stress I can have stress effects onto the body and start to relate in the indirect rising of risks of different levels of chronic disease across the board. And so this becomes very, very important because our, our HRV can actually give us a significant peak into our stress levels. It can tell us how we're recovering from physical activity or even sickness and can even predict our health risks when it comes to cardiovascular disease. And especially for, especially for athletes and those individuals who we work with here at Evolve, it can really guide our training load and help us to to train smarter, not just harder. And it can indicate to you whether or not you might need some more time off. And some of the things that I, I run into a lot with people and athletes that I work with is that they sometimes simply do too much. And doing too much can be very counterproductive to your ability to recover, to be able to build muscle, to be able to lose weight effectively, especially prioritizing muscle mass over the, lo over the loss of fat mass, uh, or lose, prioritize, I'm sorry, prioritizing the maintenance of muscle mass over losing fat mass. And so it becomes 
becomes very, very, very important that we start to learn which side our pendulum swings towards. Are we swinging more towards the sympathetic system, more towards the parasympathetic system, or do we do a pretty good job? Do we have high variability? So let's do a little bit of a lesson right now into how the parasympathetic and sympathetic branches of the nervous system relate to this. And so just to give you a quick lesson, your brain and nervous system support your heart in many ways. Your senses, your sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch, all of this feeds your information to your brain about everything around you. And your brain has a direct line to your heart, telling your heart when it needs to speed up and work harder. The direct line to your heart is known as your autonomic nervous system. This is the part of your brain with a set of nerves that operate without you thinking about them. This is all autonomic works on its own, even when you're asleep. This is how your body carries out certain reactions that you don't need to be aware of that takes care of it for you. It's divided into two main parts, your sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight, beat them up, go, and your parasympathetic nervous system, your rest and digest. All right. So you can think of your sympathetic as your fight or flight and your parasympathetic as helping balance out the nervous central, the sympathetic nervous system, controlling your natural relaxation response, especially after you've been in that sympathetic state. It controls slowing your heart rate, reducing your blood pressure, and allows you to take it easy. And so it's really, really important that there is balance between these two, because what we usually see, as I just said earlier, is a lot of individuals that struggle with stress have a hard time trying to get into this parasympathetic state. And so, and you can, there's, I mean, I have my own theories about all the different issues that result in this, not only things like genetics that can be passed down and behavioral habits, but just all the activities that are currently happening in our lives that are that are related to lack of exercise, lack of sleep, um, stress management, all of these things. And so how can we measure heart rate variability now? Because I know the biggest question I'm going to get next is, well, how do I measure something like this? Because I can guarantee you right now that everybody, and if you're a human being, you're going to qualify. Everyone deals with stress, all right? Everyone deals with some level of anxiety in some way, even if they don't talk about it. And so it becomes super important to be aware of how we can manage this the best that we possibly can. And so here's how we measure heart rate variability. And although modern technology has finally reached a point where non-medical devices devices that can track heart rate availability are affordable and easy to find. When you're in a medical setting, however, you're going to use an ECG, an electrocardiogram, which is going to show you and detect the heart rate variability. And that's going to be your gold standard. It's going to be what measures the electrical activity of your heart using sensors that are attached to your skin on your chest. Very, very accurate. However, you can wear a monitor that can track your heart rate variability consistently over longer periods of time. And it becomes really beneficial to do this um, when, when, we're at, when we're asleep as well, because we can measure what's happening to your resting heart rate during those first six hours of sleep to gauge whether or not we're going to actually get any restoration out of our sleep that night. And if you're an individual who goes to bed, sleep, tossing and turning, and not able to get uh, hit that pillow with enough time, or you feel like your mind is racing in, uh, in the evenings before you get to bed, this is also going to negatively impact your sleep, which has also been shown to increase mental-related issues and anxieties throughout that next day forward and becomes a vicious cycle. Um, what we also know is that you should avoid going to bed after 10 p.m. We'll talk about this here in a second on why this is a bad thing, especially as it relates to heart rate variability. Um, but here's what we want to see, because oftentimes we try to figure out, okay, well, if I want to really see this as a method of biofeedback training, what do I look for? You know, What does it look like to have a high versus a low uh, heart rate variability. And what we see is the low, generally speaking, 
<clears throat> and it's good to have a little bit of vari- it's good to have variability. Generally, low heart rate variabilities are indicative of being more in a sympathetic state, whereas more towards higher heart rate variabilities tend to be more in a parasympathetic state or more balanced state. The key is to have balance. The key is to be able to have that variability. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for its ability to go a little bit up and down and have an average that's higher uh, than higher than being in lower. Sometimes being in the moderate range is really, really good too. And as you age, it tends to go lower and lower. Anyhow, most likely due to the fact that we have, although we have uh, uh, more time in bed, where we have you know less total sleep and all these and, and all these things that go into this. And so what we can do then is, well, all right, well, what do I want to look for? And so what was taught to me um, by my mentors at the university is a way to look at it is if you want to figure out how to you know utilize this biofeedback of HRV, you can do the following. Now you can utilize certain devices now uh, that we all have access to. The Aura Ring is going to be your state-of-the-art thing that you can get as of right now available to people. That's the easiest thing to have. That hooks uh, that you wear a ring and hooks right to your phone, and it has one of the state, one of the most accurate representations of being able to measure your heart rate directly from your finger, which is very very similar and, and reliable measurement compared to what they would do in the hospital. Um, it's been highly validated against even things like uh, measurements of sleep, and so it is probably the best thing you can get right now. Um, it's, you can also utilize a uh, an Apple Watch. It might not be as accurate as an Aura Ring, but it can give you some sort of representation. And so there are a lot of different devices out there. I believe the Whoop does this as well. Um, But here's how you can gauge this. And so what you want to look for is you want to see your average across the week. And that's going to give you a clear indication of your stress levels that week. You can also look at your daily response of the effects that night. And this is the way that I was taught. All right. And so first, and this is the why I said you want to look at your average. Be in a consistent routine as best you can for at least a few weeks, because then that'll give you three different averages of your heart rate variability across those weeks. And that would be your average heart rate variability. That way, you know where you're normally sitting, because the way that you can use HRV as a biofeedback is what happens when you do something that is not great for your health, whether it's not getting enough sleep at night or drinking alcohol the night before or exercising way too hard. Then you can utilize those stimuli and those particular events, and you can mark those as saying, okay, how did this event affect my HRV in that particular day? And so what you can do, so let's say, for example, I'll use myself as an example. Um, Let's say my average heart rate variability is around 110, okay? And so, and it normally is for myself, looking looking at my aura ring this morning. And then let's say I drank, you know, one or two glasses of wine last night. Okay, wake up the next day, most likely might have affected my sleep a little bit. And so my heart rate variability might have come down a few points, maybe came down to around 80 or 90. That would tell me that, okay, I had one to two drinks last night. It didn't affect me all that much. So I can probably still get after it today with no big ramifications and be able to recover just fine. But let's say I did a little bit more. Let's say I got absolutely hammered the night before and I had one or even two bottles of wine and it really influenced my sleep and I did not get any restoration at all. Then it's very, very possible that I could potentially wake up with a heart rate variability somewhere 50 or 60 points below my average. Let's say it was around 60 or 75. That would be a clear indication that, whoa, okay, definitely didn't get the heart rate variability was looking for, definitely in a more stressed out state it might be a better idea to, instead of continuing to try and push it that day, to maybe do more restorative activities. This can also give, this is how it can also give you insights by looking at your heart rate and everything else, if you might be getting sick. And
And so, you know, potentially you might, if you might be getting sick, you might see your heart rate start to be up more naturally. You might see uh, your heart rate availability go down. Okay. These types, these are the types of things you can look for. However, it's, it's individual to individual, it's individual to specific people. And so this is why you have to figure out what your average heart rate variability is first before you figure out how specific incidence affects it. Because there are people out there who are absolutely normal, who might just have a little bit of a lower heart rate variability. That's just normal for them. That, that's, that happens. And so, you know, I've known numerous people who have an average heart rate variability around 50. And for them, they're fine. You know, they, they, they might not feel that they are stressed out all the time or whatever. Um, but it's why, this is why it becomes important. And this is what I was taught by some of my mentors. You have to look at them specifically and see what happens to them. So let's say I had an individual that had a heart rate variability of 50, but that was average for them. You know, they, they felt fine, you know, on a normal daily basis like that. But let's say they had a glass of wine or two or even three the night before, and they woke up the next day feeling absolutely exhausted, had no restoration, and their, and their points went down by maybe five or 10, and they felt crazy, and they felt like they needed to take an entire day off. That's specific to them, and that's how you can measure their effect. That's how you can utilize biofeedback to say, oh my gosh, my, my heart rate variability for this person went down 10 points, and for them, that is very, very significant. And so it's, it's, you have to track this on an individual basis Although, although across the normal, you know, population in most people, we have that bell-shaped curve where, okay, well, we know that higher heart rate variabilities, people are more in that parasympathetic state and have more, you know, resilience to stress. And then those who are lower, it's the opposite, but it, it depends on the individual. And so I want to challenge you that if you have the ability to measure your heart rate variability, to be able to get a good average of you being as consistent as you possibly can with normal, healthy habits, the best that you can. Or you can do it the other way around and figure out, okay, well, that might bring, you know, bring the attention to yourself. If you, if you're doing your normal lifestyle and it's really, really poor and all over the place, that that could be the reason why you're stressed out all the time and can't figure out how to get your body on track so that you can be more reactive towards getting your fitness on track and getting your sleep on track. So how do we do this? How do we figure out, okay, well, now that I've connected low CO2 tolerance and HRV together, because if you are someone who has poor CO2 tolerance, more than likely you're going to have poor heart rate variability as well, whether it's all over the place across the spectrum or whether it's way down low to where you're constantly in a stressed out state. And so what can we do? Well, here's how we can utilize these things to improve our health overall. All right. And it's going to come to the normal things that you hear about every single day. Exercise, good sleep and stress management and eating well are going to be the most important things that you can do to help improve the CO2 tolerance and your heart rate variability especially stress management, all right? Because it directly affects both of these things, all right? And so whether it's, you know, you react to something during the day and your heart rate goes up, whether it's chronic stress, which is a big thing because it can add up over time and you can think that you're fine and that you've adapted to it, but really your body is crying on the inside, okay? Um, because stress really is an uninvited guest at the party of our health. And it's linked from everything from heart disease to mental health related issues, but we can take charge of how we handle this stress with the right tools. And so the right tools are going to be utilizing things such as mindfulness practices, yoga, getting regular physical activity, and a healthy lifestyle. And so the biggest things that I can recommend to you, we'll start with physical activity, is get your recommended level of exercise, not just one or the other. You need both a balance of strength training and cardiovascular training for optimal health to where most individuals I recommend doing at least 
two to three full body exercise sessions per week, trying to hit each muscle group at least two to three times where you are having at least moderate intensity with some sort of progressive overload week to week where you are stressing muscle, building muscle, but giving enough of the stimulus to keep it around for overall health and longevity and the improvement of muscular health. Because we now know that muscular health and, and mitochondrial health are related to every single disease that we know, particularly mitochondrial health and it's linked to metabolic health, we now know is linked uh, and even mitochondrial health and cancer and cardiovascular risk as well. Um, and so when it comes to the balance of strength training, I'll also challenge individuals to also get various intensities of cardiovascular training. We now know that zone two cardio, which is a steady state cardio performed right below the intensity to where you would no longer be able to hold a conversation for longer periods of time of upwards to 45 to 90 minutes per session is is very beneficial for improving mitochondrial health and metabolic health. And with us being currently in the day and age of, have, of having a lot of individuals who do not even reach the cardiovascular minimums and have a high rate of being pre-diabetic, which also goes highly underdiagnosed in many people, this is a big issue. And so I highly recommend most people for just baseline benefits of getting at least two sessions of zone two cardio per week, where you are holding a light intensity to where you can hold a conversation, but anything more, and you would no longer be able to hold that conversation. That's how you know you're in zone two cardio. The challenge in zone two cardio is keeping your heart rate down below that level so that you can make sure that you're in that zone two. Zone two is not quite light intensity and is not quite moderate intensity. It is right in between. The true methods of knowing whether or not you're in zone two cardio is doing a lactate test. But however, most people do not have the ability to do that test right on the fly. I don't know many people besides... Uh, I don't know many people besides diabetics are willing to prick themselves, you know, before they go to the gym or when they get to the gym to know this. Um, and so you can really use an estimation of your heart rate range for most people. It tends to be around that 55 to 65% of your heart rate. But as you know, I've heard other physiologists say, and of course, Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about this as well, to ensure that you are and, and be able to maintain an intensity to where you could hold a conversation, but anything more, and you would no longer be in zone two cardio. That's how you know. And then you maintain that for 45 minutes, upwards to 90 minutes per session to get those benefits. Not only are you going to have mitochondrial health benefits and improved aerobic capacity, you're also going to increase your metabolic flexibility. So not only is this going to help with metabolic-related issues, such as those related to diabetes, um, but you're also going to allow yourself to be able to be more reliant on fat uh, for, for, your, for energy production, allowing you to be able to push yourself at higher intensities at other intensities of physical activity. And so this is where you, you, you feel the train slow, work fast type of phenomenon where you Zone two cardio is the only um, exercise that you can utilize that will get you better at improving your endurance across all other intensities, but it doesn't work backwards. In addition, you also want to do zone five cardio at least once a week because that's going to push you up into higher intensities of interval training that's going to stress your heart to be able to be more resilient towards stress. And so that becomes in its own right important for not only developing your anaerobic energy system, getting you better at harder intensities of physical activity and being able to push yourself, but it also makes your heart more resilient towards those higher intensity, stressful types of events and activities. And so really needing to understand a balance of physical activity is really, really important for optimal health. And we now know 
that independent of nutrition, exercise probably is the most important thing, the most significant tool you can use to extend your life and extend your health span, bar none. Uh, Dr. Peter Atia actually talks about this, how it's more of an asymptomatic curve, an asymmetric curve rather, um, to where, yes, Diet is very, very important, and it does have a very, very significant aspect of your health, and improving it will definitely increase your health span, but physical activity is stronger still, and being able to improve your life and increase your health, uh, health span and your resilience towards all causes of death. There's just nothing more powerful than increasing your VO2 max and increasing your resiliency towards all causes of mortality. In addition, we definitely need to make sure that we're also sleeping well. And this is some of the big this is one of the biggest challenges that many people have in our day and age. People just aren't sleeping well and have very very poor sleep hygiene. Even further, we're utilizing technology late into the night that decreases melatonin uh, release. Uh, we have our circadian um, rhythms are all out of alignment because we're not getting the proper amounts of light exposure or darkness exposure, and so a lot of us are out of sync. And even worse, we are utilizing late, uh, we're, we're staying up later past than 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and utilizing light that can even have more of a negative effect and more of a punishment loop, it seems. We see that there was research done um, that showed that individuals that stayed up past the hours of 11, a, 11 p.m. through 4 a.m. actually showed a significant negative effect on dopaminergic circuits in the brain and caused an increased level of anxiety and stress even more so in, than it would normally. And so what this is showing us is if you're an individual who already struggles with anxiety, depression, or any other mental health related issue, and you're staying up late past 10 a.m., uh, not 10 a.m., I'm sorry, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m., not only is this not doing anything well for your overall restoration and sleep, but it has an even more significant impact on your ability to have healthy dopamine levels, to feel motivated, and to be able to make better choices and actually be able to endure hard challenges throughout life that next day. And so it's going to make things like diving into stress and anxiety even worse. This is why I've been so adamant about telling people, you got to get to bed earlier, all right? You can't, it's really difficult to stay up late, especially if you're staying up late and looking at light-related sources. Now, this is different for night-related, this is different for night shift workers, and there's an entirely different episode where we're going to dive into the newest science on night shift work. I've done an episode on night shift work before with baseline-level science from the last 10 years, but now there is even more science that has come out that shows that we can do even more now to help with these related issues. But for the normal adults and, and, and kids, even older adults, everyone who has a regular daytime schedule, it becomes super important to practice sleep hygiene habits that are going to improve our sleep. And we have to be very, very careful with the routines that we have in the evening and how we're exposed to light. Sleep is involved in everything. And if your sleep is not consistent, if your sleep is not high quality, it will negatively impact any effort that you have in order to try and get healthy and get the most out of anything. Now, there's there's certain caveats. You you're having a newborn in your family, raising kids, you know, certain things like that. Um, but there are you, it does need to be prioritized in some form of fashion eventually if you want to make sure that you are doing everything that you can to get your life on track, to get your health on track. And so the best sleep hygiene habits that I recommend for most people starts with your circadian rhythms. Entrain the days and rhythmicity of which you are getting exposed to light when you exercise and when you eat. <coughs> 
The more regular you are with these three habits, not only does this improve all processes across digestion and assimilation of nutrients and cognition, but also allows it easier for you to be able to get to sleep each night. So starting your day with bright light from the sun for at least 10 to 15, sometimes 20 minutes, very, very significant and helping a cascade of processes occur the way that they need to, to get your body to do what it needs to do across all health processes. Next thing is making sure that you're eating at the right at the at the correct times every single day for you try to be regular with the amount of times that you're eating and try to exercise at the same time every day we know specifically if you're an individual who works out in the morning that this actually advances your circadian clock which is a good thing it makes it even easier to fall asleep at the desired time in the evening or early nighttime now does this mean you can't work out at night? No. You know, there's been research done that shows that nighttime exercise for the, for the most part does not seem to negatively affect some pe- most people. Um, but there are some people that it does have more of an excitatory effect and can negatively uh, impact you. Now, when it comes to the evening, just as important as getting morning sunshine, you also want to make sure that you are getting low light exposure to the sunset because it has a different wavelength that sends the opposite signal and can send a cascade of messages and signals to start the nighttime processes. Really, really great for sleep hygiene. And even more so, it's important that the lights in your home in the evenings are very, very dim. If your lights are overhead and are LEDs or very, very bright lights, they're going to imitate the same type of activity as the sun and they're going to have a negative impact on your ability to fall asleep. Rather, you should have lights that are more lower to the ground and are more dim, more orange incandescent types of lights. You want it as dim as possible after the hours of approximately five or six o'clock, sometimes at least two to three hours prior to bed. Make sure that the only lights are on are the ones that are closer to the ground and are very, very dim and orange and incandescent using any type of blue light filter that you can on any type of electrical uh, piece of equipment, your phone, computers, TVs, everything that you can to help encourage the best sleep possible. Making sure you also have some sort of downwinding routine is also going to be very, very helpful. I recommend doing all sorts of types of stress management processes, especially if you're someone who is struggling with low CO2 tolerance, anxiety, and stress and poor heart rate variability. Having an unwinding routine combined with sending a signal to the parasympathetic nervous system using extended breath work or using some form of mindfulness or yoga is going to be super significant in getting your body to send that signal to initiate more parasympathetic nervous system activity, get you more into a restful state, and allow you to be able to sleep and get high quality restoration. Those are going to be the absolute best pieces of advice to improve your sleep on a holistic habit-based way that you can really start to take control over your stress to help impact you for the absolute better. So this is how we can really start to impact stress. And this is how we can really start to understand how we can utilize things like CO2 tolerance and heart rate variability as great biofeedback markers and improving our health, improving our resilience to stress and helping us embrace our needs for health and taking our performance to new heights. I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast episode today. If you have any questions related to CO2 tolerance or heart rate variability, please be sure to check out all of our information and all of our web pages for Evolved Health and Performance. Be sure to check out our Instagram. Be sure to drop a like and a review down for us here on Spotify. Give me those five stars and help us grow so we can do all that we can to educate everyone on how to improve their lives, their fitness, their gains, and ultimately becoming the best version of themselves. Be sure to listen to the outro and be sure to give us a visit on all social media web pages and coach p and the team will see you in the next one i'm coach p and i'm out of here i'm batman
If you like today's episode, please be sure to drop a like, share it with all your friends, and give us a great review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to work with the best in the business, please be sure to head over to all of our social media web pages at Evolve Health and Performance. Us at Evolve are trying to make you the best athlete of all time and realize your full potential. Stay tuned for all future episodes where we bring you the best guests and features for everything health, fitness, and wellness. For everything Evolve, stay tuned. Coach P's out.